uh, from uh, being at the church, so I'm thinking a lot about being weary and resting. You have to work, you have to watch it when you say God wants us to rest. Because, you know, Jesus said to his disciples, "Come away with me and rest a while." And if you read the rest of the passage, they got busy again and never got to rest. <laughs> so you never know what's going to happen. Uh, but my goal tonight would be to encourage you with one one simple verse, uh, Galatians chapter, sorry, six. I'm sorry, I may have said five, but Galatians chapter six and verse nine. I think I'll read verse 10 as well. And let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Let's pray. Father, we want to ask for Your blessing on Your Word. Lord, we know that You are able to shake the ground that we walk on. And in fact, You created the world by Your Word. We pray that You would move in our hearts and encourage Your people, draw those who are not Your people. As we hear from Your Word that created us and sustains us. Help me, Lord God, in the midst of my weakness, move my heart so that when I don't... When I say these things, I actually feel the weight of them and not just uh, mouth them. We pray that you do this in Christ's name. Amen. So my goal tonight again is just to encourage you with one, one simple verse. It's really a one simple command. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due time, due season, we will reap if we do not give up. One thing I love about this command is that this is a command that understands that we get discouraged. It's a command that understands how difficult the Christian life can be to persevere in. And uh, it's an amazing thing about the Christian life that you can start off energized, passionate, on fire, eager to do good, ready to do uh, all that God has called you to do, and you can wind up, rarely intentionally, tired, listless, cold, discouraged, burned out. Not because the way of the transgressor is hard, but because the way of the righteous is hard. And so you get saved young maybe and you're full of resolves to do good and Paul even prays that we would fulfill every resolve to do good, but then you wind up a single for about 15 years longer than you'd wanted to be. And it's difficult. And you begin to grow weary in the contentment that you'd cherished and really stoked. You get married, and marriages and weddings especially are extremely exciting times where two people come together and there's an, really an excitement in the air. And, and there's this giving and, and receiving of vows that I am going to treat you like Christ loved the church. And I am going to submit to you like the church submits to Christ. And then you get about five years in and uh, leading seems like work. 
and submission seems like pain. And you begin to grow weary in doing good. And it's hard to imagine the root of bitterness that can be sown in a marriage if you've had trouble forgiving. You've actually had the opportunity to forgive 70 times 7. And if that forgiveness is not thorough, it can really work a, a bitter root into what should be sweet older years of marriage. You have children. I still remember watching vividly the birth of my first child. I hate to break it to the older ones that I, I can't remember that quite as well. But, but I remember vividly. And uh, you're going to train up a child in the way they should go and when they're old they will not depart from it. But then, as I've seen many older and faithful godly men and the children are not going in the way they were trained to go. They were they're not been converted as hoped. Childhood professions have not panned out. And you're still wanting to do them good. You're still wanting to do them good, but it's easy to grow weary in doing good. And it's not just wearisome when things don't work. When the marriage isn't all satisfying. When the children aren't all converted. When the single life is not all ministry and contentment. It's not just weary then. It's actually weary when things work too. So Peter preaches and 3,000 people get saved and then the leaders of his religion are threatening him and beating him and telling him no longer to preach in that name. And it's very tempting to grow weary in well-doing. Paul, it seems like everywhere Paul goes, a church is planted, a movement is started. Paul lived this unbelievably successful ministry and then the churches of Galatia abandoned the gospel. And maybe he could sense that the churches of Ephesus were going to lose their first love. And maybe he could see it coming, or whether or not he could see it coming, I don't know. But the Corinthians wind up just filled with problems. And so it's not just when things don't work that there can be incredible temptations to weariness. It's when there's success. It's when the children are converted and the marriage is running smoothly and, and people are being saved and the church is growing up. It's there that there can be extreme weariness. It was right after Ezekiel called down fire from heaven. Sorry, not Ezekiel. Elijah called down fire from heaven that he wound up deeply discouraged. It wasn't like he was walking away going, I called down fire and nothing happened. How long, O oh Lord, how long? No, it was right now. The fire had come. I'm the only one here. Because of the ongoing onslaught of the world, and the flesh, and the devil, all of them more powerful than we are without Christ, individually, and three times more powerful than we are together, all of this continually is constantly arrayed against the Christian. And so it is understandable why we would become weary in well-doing. 
And you know what Paul says to that? He doesn't say, oh, that's normal, get used to it. He says, don't be. Don't be weary in well-doing. I, hear, I heard one time of a man who had seen an, a new Christian converted. And one of the first things he told them was they needed to get ready for failure. No! Will there be sin in a Christian's life? Yes, John tells us if we say there is no sin in our lives, then, we, then we're deceived. But should we be expecting to just fall on our faces from the get-go and just getting used to pressing our noses into the mud for the rest of our lives? Not at all. It's very understandable that we would grow weary in well-doing, and yet the command I want to encourage you with this morning, this, this, this evening, whatever it is, I've been on the road all day. It says, let us not grow weary of doing good. Let us not grow weary of doing good. So how? How can we not grow weary of doing good? The first reason I want to give you is by keeping your eye on the reality of the harvest. By keeping your eye on the reality of the harvest. You see what it says there in chapter 6, verse 9? Let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap. If you're sowing, doing good, whether it's passing out those tracts or teaching a Bible verse to your child or uh, out preaching somewhere to bring people to Christ or in the hospital room witnessing to a brother, do not grow weary in doing this good. Do not grow weary in sowing these seeds in due time, we will reap. What does it mean to reap? It doesn't mean everyone we share the gospel with will get saved. To reap is to gain eternal life. Look at what chapter 6 verse 8 says. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. What we're looking to reap, what we're hoping to reap, is eternal life. Which means that our motivation to persevere in doing good is the same motivation that Jesus had as He persevered in doing good even to the point of death on a cross. Let us run with endurance, the writer of the Hebrews says, the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What we're looking for is that in due time, we will gain eternal life. And eternal life, as you probably know, is not just a quantity of life. It's not just life everlasting, life that will never end. It is actually also a quality of life. Jesus told us in John 17, verse 6, that this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Have you ever met someone with a magnetic personality? Someone you wanted to know. If you could just get a few minutes to, to pick their brain. If you could just be with them for a season. 
This week we've seen an outpouring of people who wanted to be like Michael, who wanted to know him, who wanted to be close to him, who are attracted to Michael Jackson. The Christian is attracted to being with and to knowing God. That's what the Christian wants more than anything. They want to know God. The frustration of the Christian life is that we see him now with a with with uh, we see him unclearly, like as through a mirror. We we see him truly, but we can't see him like we long to see him. Because when we see him, it's such an amazing impact that seeing God has that when we see him, John tells us, we shall be like him. That's what it is to see him. It it has a transforming effect. And we get glimpses as we read the Word or as we hear testimonies of other Christians of who He is and what He's like. But in the kingdom of God, when it is finally uh, brought to bear in our lives and heaven is all that we have after we die, we will see the King face to face and we will have the fullness of eternal life. Don't grow weary. You're going to have eternal life. Will it be good? Yes. Will there be an expiration date on it? No. It will last forever. We had the opportunity, when in Romania this last time, to visit the summer home of the German monarchs who ruled over Romania. This was a pre-Civil War castle with... um, built-in indoor vacuuming. Like it actually had, just like you do today, where you open up, stick the hose in, there's a pump in the basement, and it's got vacuuming, central vacuuming, through the the whole house. Pre-Civil War. That's fancy. Not to mention uh, cabinets made with uh, marble inlaid in ebony, a Turkish smoking room, a throne room. Every single uh, wonderful and lavish and ornate and gorgeous thing to enhance your life was there. Made by the finest craftsmen you could imagine. And the one who made each of those craftsmen says, I am going to prepare a place for you. Unbelievable. What could Jesus do with wood? What could he do with ebony and marble? It's unthinkable. He could absolutely make the most beautiful places you could ever imagine. And the amazing thing about the places, the place Jesus will make for us is it will all be conducive to help us enjoy him. Eternal life is to be about enjoying him. It will all reflect him. But the churches of the people I'm seeing converted are driving me crazy. You have eternal life coming. But my kids, I've shared this verse with them over and over and over again. You have eternal life coming. But I'm having to get up at 5 in the morning, work my first job, then get an hour off, and then work the second job, and I never get enough time to be with the people I love. You have eternal life coming. 
Do not grow weary in well-doing, for in due season you will reap at His right hand. There are pleasures forevermore. He will wipe away every tear, and then the tears will be gone. Here they come again. Then they will be gone. It will be rejoicing. Now you don't just need to understand and keep your eye on the reality of the harvest if you're going to avoid growing weary. You also need to keep your eye on the nature of the harvest. Do you notice what it says there in Galatians 6-9? In due season we will reap. In due season. Unless the Lord returns, most of us will be here or somewhere on Sunday. Many of us will be somewhere next Sunday. And then the next Sunday after that. And the next Sunday after that. And a year will go by and two years will go by. And this incredibly eternal life that I just described will still not be ours in its fullness. It doesn't come immediately. Uh, We live in a culture where everything comes immediately. If you, we live in a culture where you can basically live, unless you're a farmer, completely divorced from the cycle of sowing and reaping. You like grapes? They're always available. From California, and if they haven't got them in California, you can get them from Chile. You can get peaches all year long. Why? Because we can bring them in from wherever we want. It's like, it's like somewhere in the world they're always growing peaches coming to a supermarket near you. And so it's completely divorced. There used to be summer fruits. There used to be summer vegetables and winter vegetables. There used to be things you could keep in a root cellar like potatoes and things you had to eat right away like tomatoes. There used to be times when you had to eat the canned fruits and then there was times when you got to eat the fresh fruits. Why? Because we were connected to this pattern of sowing and reaping. And what you learn, and I haven't learned this practically. I'm a city kid. I've been eating peaches from Chile my whole life. I grew up in Canada, so I don't know where this fruit was coming from. (laughs) But we are not used to this pattern of sowing and then waiting a long time through many circumstances that we cannot control and then reaping. But that's the Christian life. We sow by doing good. We sow by walking in the Spirit. We sow and we sow and we sow. But we do not control the day we die. And God may be pleased to keep us here over a hundred years. And then we'll reap. If you confuse that, if you get confused on this issue, you will always grow weary. If you think that the things in the Christian life, the blessings of the Christian life are immediate, that they come immediately, you will always find yourself weary because you will always be disappointed. If you're living for your best life now, 
and it keeps not happening, eventually you're going to go, this isn't the real deal. God's letting me down. And we need to realize that we are to have our hope set on heaven. When 3,000 people get saved on the day of Pentecost, you are not to rejoice that the spirits are subject to you, but that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. That's why we're to rejoice. If churches are getting planted all over the place, all your kids are getting saved. Everywhere you walk, they go, oh, your kids are so wonderful. They're so godly. Oh, your marriage is such a joy to watch. Everywhere you go, there's success. It's still not to be what you rejoice in. I told you these testimonies of these three people at the beginning. Where will they all be in five or ten years? I don't know. I don't know. Right now, the church that I pastor is just gloriously healthy. I don't have any illusions to think I'm a better pastor than the Apostle Paul. And he wound up with Corinth on its hands. And Galatia. Nothing in this life is stable. Nothing. Nothing. The harvest is all future. And by future, I don't mean next week. I don't mean ten years from now. I mean on the other side of death. It's all, all of the glory that we are to finally put our hope in comes to us in due season. Don't lose heart. It's coming. It's coming. Those of you who are younger in the church ought to be having conversations with those who are older and they will look you in the eye, I'm sure, and tell you James is right when he says it's only a vapor and it goes by so fast. It's coming though. In due season. The third thing though you need to um, focus on if you're not going to grow weary is the conditionality of the harvest. The conditionality of the harvest. First we looked at how the, uh, the harvest is um, something that, is com- that we, it, we will receive. We will reap it. We need to focus on the harvest that's coming. Then we looked at how it's coming in due season. We need to know its nature. We need, we need to see also that it's conditional. If we do not give up, we will reap if we do not give up. And of course, I can tell just from the testimonies that we've heard that you are well aware of the theology that is prevalent throughout this land, that you can name Jesus Christ as Lord and then give up and still get the harvest. That's a lie. It's a lie. You can't give up the Christian life, throw in the towel, leave following Jesus, cease to believe, discontinue sowing to the Spirit, and still receive eternal life. If you could, you would be mocking God. And Galatians chapter 6, verse 8 says, for the, it says, sorry, verse 7, do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. God won't be mocked. 
There will not be tens of thousands of people thronging into heaven who named Jesus Christ once and then gave up. They won't be there. They will, he will, they will not reap eternal life. Now, does this mean we're teaching salvation by works? That you've got to keep working in order to go to heaven? Is that what we're teaching? Well, I'm so glad this verse is in the book of Galatians because no book in the Bible could make it more clear that we are not teaching salvation by works than the book of Galatians. Galatians makes it abundantly clear when Paul says to Peter in Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, or says in reference to Peter, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. To be justified is to be declared righteous by God. It is to receive His imputed righteousness. It is to take His righteousness. He puts it on your bank account, puts it all into your account. You have all the righteousness of Christ before God the judge. And the Bible is abundantly clear. It's not by obeying God that you get a record of being justified, but it's by Christ's obedience to God, His death on the cross for sins, and His giving you His righteousness, and you believing in Him, that's how you receive righteousness, not by works of the law. At all. All who seek to be justified by works of the law are under a curse. But Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it says, Cursed be everyone who's hanged on a tree. And where was Christ? On a tree. Cursed. So the way we're right with God is not by works of the law. And when we say in Galatians chapter 6, verse 9, if we do not give up, we're not teaching justification, we're not teaching salvation by works at all. So what does it mean not to give up? Why can't I give up? Because the faith that Christ brings is a faith that always results in good works. It always results in love. It's a faith which Ephesians, or sorry, Galatians chapter 5 tells us this faith works through love. Galatians chapter 5 verse 6 for in Christ Jesus neither circumcision or uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith works through love, working through love. We live by faith in the love Son of God who loved us and gave Himself for us, and we perceive that we've been loved, and what happens inevitably is that it results in us loving. You can't give up on that faith. You have that faith, you will reap. You give up on that faith, you will not reap. If you hold on to the faith in Christ that loved you and gave Himself for you, you will inevitably love. You will press on in love. But if you throw away doing good deeds and throw away love, it's because you've thrown away faith in Christ. We will reap if we do not give up. You sounded very strong at this point in your testimonies, but I, I want to 
emphasize something here because I think the Bible emphasizes it. It's hard when you're looking at your brother and he's been drinking his whole life, but he says he believes in Jesus, to still believe he's really not a Christian. That's hard. It's hard when someone says, I really believe, even though you see no life of good works. It is hard to keep believing that they're not a Christian. That's hard. And I think that's why three times in the New Testament, Paul says, do not be deceived on this point. Every time he lists all the sins that people who are not going to heaven commit, he starts with, do not be deceived. 1 Corinthians 6, Ephesians chapter 5, and in some sense here in Galatians chapter 6, he says, do not be deceived. Why? Because the idea that sin won't really take me to hell, is one that we are easily deceived on. Eve was deceived that way. You will not surely die. And now we have tens of thousands of Christians who are full of drunkenness, full of immorality, full of gossip, full of greed, and they believe, I will not surely die. And when you look them in the eyes and they're weeping over their sin, but you know it's shallow and you know there's no real repentance, it can become easier to believe them than to believe the Bible. Do not be deceived. God will not be mocked. Those who do not live a godly life have a faith and have a faith that is without works. They have a dead faith and such faith cannot save them. I want to encourage you tonight with the promise of reaping. But it would be a wicked encouragement to say if you're flirting with immorality, giving a long-term pattern of gossip in your life a place, Loving greed, shrinking back into being a coward, and staying there, to say that then there would be encouragement, it would be folly. We will reap if we do not give up. Now let me just say a word. Some of you may be here contemplating whether or not you should be a Christian. Whether or not you ought to call out to the Lord. And maybe what's calling causing you to, to, to pull back from, from seeking Him and from believing in Him is that you know it's just a long obedience in the same direction, as one man put it. You know it's just one foot in front of the other. It's not glitz and glamour every moment. It's not perpetual excitement. It is just a constant, deliberate self-denial and faithfulness and taking up your cross daily throughout most of the Christian life. And that's what's keeping you from That's what's keeping you from Christ, is you know what the Christian life is. Can I just plead with you? What you're going to reap is corruption and destruction. You're holding on to a better life now. You are forsaking a a, a terrible glory later. And you are going to be in weeping and gnashing of teeth and destruction, all because you wanted it a little easier, a little more exciting now, a little less wearisome now. It's folly. You need to come to Christ. He sets joy before you. He says, come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He says He will satisfy your soul. He is living waters. Come to Him. Repent and believe in Him. Press on in following Him and you will reap. 
Now, believers, what should we do? We know that the Christian life produces weariness. We know we're not to be weary. We know we're not to be weary because we will reap. We know that the reaping is going to come in due season. And we know that we must press on if we would reap. So what should we do now? Well, verse 10 looks like a good place to start. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Press on in doing good to one another. Love one another. Care for one another at weddings, at funerals. Give one another meals in times of trials. When you see weariness, the very weariness that we've described, offer to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Is there someone discouraged? Come alongside of them. Is there someone down? Come alongside of them. Do not let anything stand in the way of your love for one another. These are the opportunities we have for doing good. And they should be especially expressed to the body, the household of faith. Now, I have to say one word for the sensitive conscience before I finish here. Some of you are thinking, oh boy, now I need to do more good. And I was already having trouble ever reading the Bible with my kids, but now I have to remember the tens of thousands of prostitutes who've been in the slave trade in India and on the highways of this country now. I have to remember the lost in all kinds of places in the world. And there's also other family down the street that's doing worse than I am and I need to minister to them even though I'm having barely any opportunity to minister to my own family. Thanks for the encouragement, Ryan. Glad you came. As we have opportunity. As we have opportunity. There's a million dollars needed for this cause. I don't have a million dollars. God does not want you going home and feeling guilty for the million dollars you don't have. Yes, we should seek all the opportunities we can to do good. But God does not want you to have a sense that you are not obedient to Him until every need in the world has been alleviated. He is the one who knows your dust. He knows your frame. He knows your place. He He made you so that you had one place and one time in the world. He knows that it takes a lot of time to raise kids. He knows that it takes sweat off your back to feed a family. He knows that. And our good is to be a guilt-free good that is as we have opportunity. Gloriously liberating. I feel bad. I'm just, I'm just mostly caring for the household of faith. I only get to do a little bit for unbelievers. Sounds a little bit like this verse here. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those of the household of faith. Brothers and sisters, God set your health. He set your times. He controls your financial resources. He opens up your opportunities. So filled with a heart of love and with hope that we're going to reap, 
with great liberty, we should do good to all, especially those of the household of faith. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. It's liberation, it's freedom, it's encouragement, it's promises, it's warnings. Lord, I pray that it would result in all of my brothers and sisters here serving with more zeal, more liberty, more freedom, more passion, lifting up their weary hands and their their knees, being able to be straightened, Lord, so they have they have the zeal which you desire and the establishment of grace that you desire for their hearts. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's amazing, isn't it, how we uh, think of something more than eternal life being necessary to motivate us. I mean, um, it just means we lose sight of what eternal life is. I remember one time many years ago when Dick and I were still in Germany, and uh, I think Dick had gone somewhere, and I was uh, mopping the floor of that place where we stayed, and it dawned on me, eternal life. And uh, it, I, I don't know that I've ever had it since then in that way, but if we get one glimpse of eternal life, um, the meaning of that is enough to strengthen us for all kinds of things. And that's what Paul kept coming back to. It was real to him. Remember that whole chapter on the resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15, talking about this very thing. How does he end it off? Wherefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. And that's all in the context of the resurrection and eternal life. Well, praise the Lord. I'd say this would whet your appetite to have gotten in on all the messages on Galatians that I heard over in Romania. Oh, what, what a wonderful portion of Scripture.